So we got down through the end of chapter 1 last time, looking at the sin and the evil and the wickedness of the Gentile world. That was true in Noah's day. That was true in Paul's day as he was writing this book. And that's true in our day as well. That the world, the pagan world, the world that doesn't know God, they're evil. Their desire is for sin and they have no right judgment. In chapter 2, he begins to look. And you know, it's not just the Gentile world that's guilty and in sin. It's all of the world. So he begins to turn it to, uh, to the Jew in this day, to the religious people, people that knew the Word of God, they knew God's standard, they knew what was sin, and they knew what was good, and yet they're guilty as well. But you know, here they are. They're righteous in a sense of their self. They're looking out at the wickedness of the world, and they're judging them. And no doubt, we've all heard in some form or fashion, we've heard these words. Well, people like that's going to die and go to hell. God's going to take care of people like that. They need to learn their lesson. God's going to teach them a lesson. That is, that's me deciding what people need. And that's what he's talking about, judging here. Here's religious people looking at a wicked world and judging them. So we'll pick up in in verse 2. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. So we're sure, we know, we are certain, we're positive, that God's judgment, His decision for or against, is in truth. So God's judgment is not based on, and you think about man's judgment, it's swayed by our relationship with whoever it would be that we're judging. And I've seen in my family, I believe it's the case for every family, somebody outside commits an evil and we want them judged and to pay for that. But somebody close to me commits the very same evil and the judgment is nowhere near as harsh. Because we like them. We love them. They're our friends. They're our family. Well, God's judgment is not based in how I feel or what I think. God's judgment is based in truth. In the truth of the Word of God. So you can rest assured in this, that all of the world and the wickedness of the world, they're going to be judged by the truth of the Word of God. But be sure of this as well, everyone sitting here is going to be judged by the truth as well. God's not going to judge the wicked world any different than we are judged. All of man is going to be held accountable to the same standard, to the same righteousness, to the same holiness of God Himself. So the church here, the the religious crowd, is judging, but we're sure. We know that God's going to bring judgment. So in, in Job 34, and we'll see more of this as we get a little deeper into the Scripture, but in Job chapter 34... Verse number 17. 
Shall even he that hateth right govern? And wilt thou condemn him that is most just? Is it fit to say to a king, Thou art wicked, and to princes, ye are ungodly? How much less to him that accepteth not the persons of princes, nor regardeth the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. So God's judgment, he's not looking at who is who. He's not looking at what family we're from. He's not looking at what we have or whether we're in authority. God is judging in truth by the word of God each individual. You can be sure, certain, and positive of that. We've, we could look at other scriptures. We will. Um, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but verse 11 of this chapter, for there's no respect of persons with God. God does not respect who I am in the flesh, but the judgment of God is based on one thing, the truth, which commits such things. So that word again is to practice or perform repeatedly or habitually. Can anybody say that they don't sin repeatedly or habitually? Now we got we got Bible. If you say that you don't sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So, verse 3, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. So here's a man that's judging a wicked world, bringing forth sentence, determining what people deserve from God. He's looking at a wicked world and judging them in that way as being lawbreakers and breakers of the very covenant and the law of God. And they are a lawbreaker. So, now, I, I, we, we want to see this. Here's a man that's I'm going to judge Chris because he's broken the law of God and he ought to be judged for it. When I have broken the law of God as well. Now I realize in the carnal mind, now the carnal mind is not truth, it's enmity to God. But in the carnal mind, I think I'm better than Chris because Chris has broken more commandments. But in truth, by the Word of God, if you've broken one, you've broken them all. If you're guilty of one, then you're guilty. The word sin, and we'll see it more and more in the book of Romans, often it means to miss the mark so as not to share in the prize. If we were going to have a rifle shoot, we set a target up at 100 yards, and we put a quarter up as the target. And to win, you've got to hit the mark. Well, if you miss by 40 yards, or you miss by 2 inches, you've missed. You've not won the prize. Well, the righteousness of God is perfection. No breaking of the law. No place of error. No place of failing. So if you've broken all the commandments a hundred times, you've missed the mark. 
If I broke one once, I've missed the mark. And I'm not going to share in the prize. So here, thinkest thou this, you that are passing judgment on people that have broken the law, do you think that you and your sin is going to somehow skirt around the judgment and the wrath of God? It's funny how man's mind thinks that this crowd's going to pay for their sin and my sin, why it's not, we're not going to have to worry about that. But that's the way the carnal mind works. He's able to see and judge and cast down somebody else's failure and easily overlook my own failure. But God says, do you think that you're going to escape? So thinkest, to take an inventory or to estimate. That's what that word means. So when you get the inventory down and you begin to look over your own individual life, how much sin have you got? Just once or twice we've failed? In the last year, how many sins have you got on the inventory? So do you think you're going to get by with all of that? Is man going to go around the judgment of God? There's going to be no escape. In Ezekiel chapter 17. Ezekiel 17 verse 15. But he rebelled against him in sending his ambassadors into Egypt that they might give him horses and much people. Shall he prosper? Shall he escape that doeth such things? Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? Now that's God with a question. Are you going to go against God's Word and be delivered? Can you be a covenant breaker and escape the judgment of the wrath of God. We've got a, a great example in Numbers chapter 26. Now we know that as the children of Israel came unto Kadesh Barnea to the border of Canaan's land, as they came out of Egypt, God's desire was that they would believe in Him and go in and inherit. But we know this, there were 600,000 fighting men men in the military. That would be from age 20 to age 50. There was 600,000 men between the age of 20 and 50 that refused to go in. Now how many more were there? Well, there were, there were women. They, if they all had a wife, then we're up to 1.2 million people between 20 and 50. And if some of their parents were alive that were older than 50, I mean, we're looking at two, two and a half, three million people above the age of 20 in this group. They came up, and we know they didn't go in. They did not believe God. God swore in His wrath that none of them would enter. Now, out of a crowd of that many, it would be easy to miss one, wouldn't it? In Numbers 26... Verse number 64. Now they've walked in the wilderness for 40 years. They've come back to the border and God's getting ready to take them in. And Moses does a count of the people. And in 64, But among these there was not a man of them whom Moses and Aaron the priest numbered 
when they were numbered, the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. So as Moses went through numbering the people, there wasn't one that was left that God said would not enter in. They all died in the wilderness and not one skirted the judgment of God. There's not going to be any skirt the judgment of God today either. Man will be held accountable. Man will meet God in the judgment. So verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. So there's a lot of words here, so let's get some definitions. Despisest thou to think against or to disesteem the goodness, the moral excellence or usefulness, and forbearance, the self-restraint, and the long-suffering, the patient endurance of God. So is God these things? Is God good and good towards mankind? How good that our God is even to a wicked world. And you know, of a truth, we could say how good God has been to a country that overall has forsaken Him and desires that which is opposite to His Word and His will. God's still been good. Has He been long-suffering, withholding His anger and wrath and judgment for the sin of man. See, our world has painted God as somebody who's not angry. But the Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And yet, He has withheld year after year His judgment against the wicked. His forbearance and long-suffering. Now, God is that way with all of mankind. If you're saved, when you lived in absolute rebellion to God, God could have at any moment brought swift judgment, took us out of this world, and cast us into the lake of fire. But God was long-suffering and merciful, wasn't He? He was good to us when we were evil towards Him. He was good to us when we mocked Him. He was good to us when we willfully rebelled against His Word and His commandment. God was long-suffering. Now man here, man's despising, he's disesteeming, thinking evil of, the very long-suffering and mercy of God. You know what he's wanting? He's wanting God to bring them down judge them and bring them to destruction and do that speedily. He's calling for God to bring judgment on a people that's in rebellion against God. Well, do you despise the very long suffering of God that brought you to repentance? He says this in Psalms 78. Now, I believe we can all say this. Every single one of us can say this, Psalm 78 verse 38, but he being full of compassion forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all of his wrath. How many times did God, has God, 
looked upon us and our sin and our filth and not stirred up His anger towards us. Not brought swift judgment upon us. He says in Lamentations, a very familiar scripture in chapter 3, that it's of the Lord's mercies that were not consumed. He says in Isaiah chapter 1, if it had not been for the Lord, we would have been as Sodom and been like Gomorrah. You know what God was? He was long-suffering. And if God had not been long-suffering, we would have all been cut off and all been destroyed. There would have been none to find salvation and mercy had not God endured with our rebellion and hatred for Him. We would have all been cut off. So do you despise the fact that God is merciful with them that are sinners? and that are wicked, that the purpose, that they might come to repentance. That's the way He worked for us, wasn't it? He was merciful and long-suffering that we could have opportunity to come to repentance, be forgiven, and be born again. But man despises the very goodness, long-suffering, and mercy of God demanding judgment upon man. I think we got a great example in Jonah of this mindset. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah went to Nineveh after that he rebelled, that he went to Tarshish, that he was cast out of the ship, that a whale swallowed him up, and three days he spent in the whale's belly before he was spit out, and then Jonah decided to obey God. You know what God could have done? When Jonah purposed in his mind to go the other way from Nineveh, God could have killed him. When Jonah got on the ship to sail the opposite direction, God could have sunk the ship. When they cast Jonah out of the ship and into the whale's belly, God could have let him drown there. But God was long-suffering with Jonah over and over again. Jonah went to Nineveh, Jonah preached and the whole city repented and God forgave them of the iniquity. Now do you remember what Jonah thought about that? He was mad that they were forgiven. Now I don't, I don't doubt that the Assyrian, it was the Assyrian nation and kingdom. Nineveh was the capital. I don't doubt that they were wicked. History would say they would come into a place and skin the enemy alive. They were a mean people. Jonah did not want them to be forgiven. And yet when they repented, God was merciful, and Jonah was angry that God forgave them. And he said, I knew you would forgive them. I knew you wouldn't bring judgment. So why don't you just take my life from me? And he went and set out in a field in the sun to pout. So God brought a gourd up to shade Jonah from the sun. And Jonah was glad for this gourd that shaded him out of the light of the sun. Well, the next day God brought a worm and killed the gourd. And Jonah was mad that the gourd died and wasn't there to shade him anymore. And God says, Jonah... You're upset that the gourd died. 
but you wanted a city with 120,000 children that didn't know their right from their left to be destroyed. Jonah despised God's long-suffering, but Jonah was unable to see how long-suffering God had been with him. How that God had spared him over and over and over again. To despise God's mercy and long-suffering that we might be brought to repentance. So they despise that in verse 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So hardness, callousness, or stubbornness. So callousness, that's a picture of working with your hands. And over time, they build up those calluses where you lose feeling. You know, playing a guitar, a very well-known way of building calluses on your fingers. But they lose feeling. And stubbornness, so this comes from a repeated and a continual rejection and spurning. Calluses come from a continual use. Repeated over and over and over again and those calluses build on your hands or wherever. Well here, the hardness of their heart is brought from a repeated and a habitual rejection to the Word of God an impenitent, unrepentant, or to admit no change of mind. So God's Word has came, God's Word has spoken, and they have hardened, they've rejected, and they're admitting that their mind is not going to be changed by the Word of God. Now, you think about that. You go to the dock... And the doc says you need to do this or you're going to die. Well, if we believe that doctor and we believe there's something wrong, we're going to do what he says. What he says is going to change our mind about how we live. What about God's Word and God Himself? When God says something, should His advice be taken? Should God's Word change my mind? as to what I think and what I feel and what I believe. But here's a crowd now that though hearing the Word of God and hearing it often, they're rejecting what God says, they're disbelieving, and they're becoming more and more calloused every time they hear it. They feel it less and less and less, and they're not moving to the Gospel. So what's this resulting in? Let's, let's look at a place or two first. In 2 Chronicles, the last chapter of 2 Chronicles, 36, verse number 11. And Zedekiah was one and twenty years old when he began to reign, and reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. 
But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. So here's the king. He's got authority and rule. Jeremiah is warning him. The other prophets, they're warning him. He's made an agreement, a deal with Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of all the world, but he's not going to hear and he's not going to obey any of that. But he's hardening his neck. Moreover, all the chief priests and all the people transgress very much after all the abominations of the heathen. They polluted the house of the Lord which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes, that means early and often, and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. So God was merciful. God was long-suffering. God allowed sin to go on. He did not bring swift judgment. But He sent His messengers. You know what He sent over and over? He sent His word. He sent His warning. He sent His plea. His desire was to bring them to repentance. But that very long-suffering and mercy caused their hearts to be hardened and them to go onward into sin. The very goodness of God in the mind of man became an excuse to go farther. We read that in Ecclesiastes because judgment against an evil work isn't executed speedily. It's fully set in the hearts of the sons of men to do evil. Because God's not taking people out of this world as soon as they sin, man believes that he's getting by with what he's doing. Man believes that the lifestyle he's living, God's not going to do anything about it. The very long-suffering of God and His mercy is thought evil of, not realizing that the purpose of it, that we would hear His Word and come to repentance. But they hardened and stiffened till there was no remedy. There was no cure for the wrath of God. So that's what we see here. These people are hardening. They're not repenting at the Word of God. And they are treasuring up unto thyself. So to amass or to reserve, to gather and lay up. It's like a retirement account. That paycheck after paycheck, a portion of that's going into your retirement account. You are treasuring up, you are laying up for the day that you retire. Well, God's given us that picture here. But what they're doing by going on and walking over the long-suffering and the mercy and the goodness of God is they're treasuring up wrath. The wrath of God is getting greater. You see, as I treasure up, as I get paid in another week, my account for retirement is going to grow. Well, as people reject God's Word and His Gospel and are unrepentant toward His Word, God's wrath is growing. Now, I realize a lot of people don't believe that. But that's what He's saying here. And as well, in Luke, 
where he says, The servant that knew his Lord's will and did it not shall be beaten with many stripes, and the servant that knew not his Lord's will shall be beaten with few. So the judgment of God looks like it's based on what I know. As we hear the gospel, as we have great opportunity, as it's rejected, the wrath of God's building, not only because I'm a sinner, but because I'm rejecting to hear His Word and rejecting to come to His Son. Against the day of wrath and revelation. So there's a day of wrath that is to come. There's a day that the anger of God is going to be unmixed. We get that picture in the prophets as well in Revelation when God pours out the wine of His wrath unmixed. You can take wine and water it down and it'll go farther, but it's not as strong. You know, today we may see God's judgment and wrath in a picture in some ways, but it's very watered down. There's a day of the full revelation of God's wrath that's to come, and it's that day that man ought to be concerned about. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the Bible says this, The heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So there were scoffers in Peter's day that were saying he's not ever going to come back. They were mocking the very long suffering of God extended unto them that they might come to repentance. But they said this, this is never going to come and God's not going to judge the world. Well, let me ask you this. Where are these people at? The people in Peter's day that were scoffing at the judgment that was to come, where are they at today? They're long gone, wouldn't you say? Been dead for 2,000 years, more than likely. They went out and they found the wrath of God. Those that were scoffing 50 years ago, many of them's gone as well. So see, even with God's long-suffering, Man's got a very short time. And though there's mocking and making fun and thinking little of now, the day of the revelation of the wrath of God is coming. But Peter says they're willingly ignorant of this. That God's already destroyed the whole world in Noah's day with a flood. And the same world is held in store Reserved is the word that he uses here. It's detained. The picture is somebody that's on death row and they're in a cell being held until their execution date comes. You know, in our country it's well known. You get tried, found guilty, you're sentenced to death and it takes 25 years before you face that judgment. But they're held, they're detained in a place until their judgment is carried out. That's the way the world is right now. It is reserved. 
and the day of the wrath of God, the time and the hour is set that God will reveal His wrath against man. Now you scoff at it and you say that's never going to come just as they did in Peter's day, but those people are in the grave. And we're going to the grave as well. And it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. So whether you're alive and breathing on the earth when God returns in flaming fire, or you're down in the grave in hell, we're all going to see the wrath of God fully revealed. That day is coming. It's sure and it's certain. How, how sure is it? Well, in, in Acts chapter 17, as Paul's preaching at Mars Hill, he says, because he hath appointed a day in which you will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he ordained, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men. God gave assurance that this day of judgment is coming. What assurance did He give? And that He hath raised Him from the dead. Jesus was resurrected, and that's assurance that the day of the wrath of God and the righteous judgment of God is coming. Sure, certain, Set in stone in Revelation 6. Revelation, a, a picture, a, a, a book of great imagery. And we get pictures over and over again. In chapter 6, I believe we can see a picture of the day of wrath. Verse number 12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. And lo, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. The stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, that's a slave, and every free man hid themselves in the dens, in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, to hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. So here is people that are praying for a mountain to fall on them, that they wouldn't have to stand before this angry God. They had rather die as to have to look and stand before Him. This day of wrath, this day of judgment, is far greater and more fearful than man's able to put into words. We get pictures here and there. But what... What determines this? In Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 14. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of His knowledge by us in every place. So Paul says he's thankful to God 
who wherever he stands, whether it's at Mars Hill, among the Greeks and the educated, it's on Miletus amidst the barbarians, it's in Jerusalem in the synagogue of the Jews, or in Rome before Caesar himself, he says God always causes us to triumph and allows the knowledge of him through the gospel to go out. But listen, for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death. To the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? So the gospel and the knowledge of God is going out to man. And that knowledge and that understanding and that revelation that God gives to man, it's either going to bring me unto life and to salvation or it's going to harden my heart and bring me unto death. But how man responds to the gospel is what determines my fate at the final day of judgment. There's no question whether you or me are sinners or not. We are sinners. We have broke the law. Are we going to get around God's judgment being a breaker of the law? We're not. So God's give the gospel, the word of God, to give us warning of this day that's coming, of this anger and wrath that is building. He gives us the gospel of Jesus, a means of escape of the fire and judgment of God that we might be saved. And yet man, man looks at others that are worse than he is and says, well, they need it more than I do. I'm just fine the way I am. I'm better than most people. I'm a step above the world. I'm more righteous. I know about God. I believe in God. Man's got every excuse in the world, but he won't come to the gospel. Well, know this. Whether you're the best of the best or on the bottom, if you don't come to the gospel of the Son, Jesus Christ, and be born again, you will not escape the judgment of God. That's, that's as far as we'll go. I actually went a little long.